Welcome to the Brazil Church of the Nazarene Weekly Sermon Podcast for Sunday, February 10th, 2019. Today, we welcome Luke Smeltzer, a preaching ambassador from Olivet Nazarene University. Pastor Marlon Betts will introduce Luke, who speaks about the Christian life and community from Romans chapter 12. Let's listen to Luke's message. So good to have you here at our worship service today and um, filling the Spirit of the Lord and beginning to come together as a body of Christ, and, and we're here to lift up Jesus. And uh, we've got a, a, a treat today from Olivet uh, Nazarene University, our regional college, and uh, it's good to have Luke and, and to have him in our home and to be able to, to, to hear what's going on in his life and, and tell him about pastoral ministries from my perspective. And, um, and so Luke's going to be speaking to us this morning, but we want to really just focus in on what God is saying. Amen? And uh, just let God speak through this young man and encourage him and, uh, and smile at him and let him know that you're paying attention and nod, not nod, and all those kind of things, right? We're with him t- this morning, right? And uh, Luke is a sophomore. He's probably 20 years old. And uh, he's got a long ways to go to be my age and your age, but uh, we want to we want to support him and get behind him today, and uh, then we're going to continue with the worship just like we normally do. So it's important that we we do this today. Let me just say a prayer, Lord. We just thank you for Luke being here today. Thank you for our time of worship today. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that the Spirit of the Lord is here, and thank you, Lord, that you are ministering to us. And you're going to use Luke today to minister to us. Pray that you'll bless every word and help us to be attentive to the truth. And and Lord, we pray that he will feel your presence and your anointing as he speaks what you've laid on his heart today. And we thank you for Olivet Nazarene University and the training of students for ministry and many other things. And we love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, God bless you. Good morning, church. All right. As Pastor Betts has already said, my name is Luke Schmelzer. I am a sophomore at Olivet Nazarene University, your regional uh, Nazarene University. I'm studying to be a pastor there. Uh, I feel the calling of God on my life to be able to serve his people and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation will have eternal life. Uh, So my biggest thanks for you to letting me be here today and minister to you, and I thank you for already ministering to me. Uh, Huge thanks to the Betts family for uh, just the the years of wisdom and experience and uh, and for sharing your hearts with me and also for the cookies, which were delicious. (laughs) Um, So as we come into the message this morning, Um, I'll be reading out of the ESV. It might be a little different than on the screens, but it's not too different. Uh, We'll be in, uh, I think as the bulletin says, Romans chapter 12. So if if you have a Bible with you today, feel free to turn there. Now, I believe that there's an immense importance in our theology, in the way that we think about God. I believe that the way that we think and understand our faith has a huge bearing on the way that we live our lives. As Christians, we are called to seek and to know truth. But there must be a balance between knowing and doing. 
We can't expect to live as Christ has called us to live if we don't understand our calling. And it would be pointless for us to spend our lives studying and learning if we never went out and applied that in the real world. In his letter to the Roman church, the Apostle Paul gives this magnificent summary of the gospel message of the death that sin brings to our new life in Christ and everything in between. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Roman presenting this foundation, explaining the faith, the truth of the faith to the church. And in chapter 12, he switches from the, from the, um, the statements of truth to the application of that truth, from the why to the how. In these last four chapters, 12 through 16, Paul gives us great insight into how we should live as Christians in relation to the church and the community around us and to the authorities over us. He moves uh, in explaining in chapter 12. We find a ton, of, a ton of teaching as to how we are to honor God in the way that we live, and a great number of practical points are in there. And so I think that chapter 12 of Romans is a great summary of what the Christian life should look like. So we'll be breezing all the way through that today, maybe a little fast, but you'll just have to invite me back next time to give a little more depth. So let's focus there today. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. This first, this first section is about being a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now Paul starts off here with an urgent appeal to the believers in Rome. He doesn't just command them, but he urges them lovingly that they would submit themselves to living a holy life in service to God. He addresses here them as as brothers. He addresses them like family, it's not just a general address. He's, they're not just his co-workers, but they are his family in Christ. They're like his blood relatives, his brothers and sisters in the family of God. We should take note also that the reason he gives for this urging is not his own authority as a leader. He could say, do as I say because I'm the Apostle Paul, but he doesn't. Neither does he urge them by, even by the fear of God. He doesn't say, do this or else but rather he urges them by the mercies of God. Paul is saying to them, because you have seen and felt the great mercy of God our Father, you should present your life to serve him and to worship him. And he's just spent 11 chapters explaining the mercies of God to them. So if they didn't know before, they certainly do now. He urges them to offer their bodies as as objects of worship. And not just their bodies, but their whole being, mind and body and soul. So what does this phrase mean, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? See, here Paul is drawing a connection to the sacrifices of the Old Testament. As part of the Old Testament law, you would bring sacrifices to the temple. Sacrifices of praise, of thanksgiving, and sacrifices to forgive sin. For an animal to be acceptable as a sacrifice, it must be pure. An unblemished animal set apart from the rest. To be pleasing to God. It must be spotless and holy. We see throughout the Old Testament these stories of people being corrected for bringing forward unholy offerings. When they would bring an offering that was second-rate, dirty, or impure, it was, 
insulting to a God who is so, so holy. But since we as believers have had Jesus who sacrificed himself for us, Jesus who the, John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what does it mean for us to be a living sacrifice? To be a living sacrifice is to live for the Lord, holy and pure in the new life that he has given us. Romans 6.4 says, We were there, therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He gave us this new life, and so now we present it back to him as, as an offering of worship, so that he may work his will through us. Christ died for us, and so now in response, we live for him. Moving on to verse 2. Paul warns the believers, don't be conformed to the world around you. And so the believers hearing this would have to ask themselves, what part of life in the Roman Empire doesn't reflect the kingdom of God? And so when you look at a bit through history and see what the culture is like in Rome, you see some very disturbing things. And unfortunately, some things that are even similar to the way we live today, this, the culture around us. In Roman society, your social status meant everything your fame, your fortune, and your connections. For many Romans, everything that they did was political. Everything they did was an attempt to climb the ladder, even if it meant kicking other people down on the way. The poor and uneducated and the marginalized had little to say in the way that things worked and very little value in the scheme of things. People could care less what you believed so long as it gave you some moral code to follow and kept you out of their face. So in the ancient world of Rome, it was like everyone had their own god, their own idol to worship, and don't talk to me about yours, just leave me alone, I don't care what you're doing, so long as it gives you some, makes you a good citizen to follow, just mind your own business. And in that climate, Christians were some weird people. Being a Christian meant not being conformed to this pattern. It meant not chasing after power, after fame, or after fortune. Being a Christian meant showing love and kindness and mercy and generosity to the lowest of the low. We see in, in Rome in the early church, many of them were slaves and the very poorest caste of society in the Christian church. Being a Christian meant forgiving the people who wronged you and not seeking revenge against them. It meant sharing the good news with anyone who would listen and even trying to share with those who wouldn't listen. As Christians, we are called to be salt and light to the world. We are called to be witnesses to the love and the glory of God in this world. We are called to speak forth the gospel message and show Jesus in the way that we live, not conforming to the world around us. For what good is it for us to share our faith if we're no different from everyone else? If a person who is outside of the faith sees that you're just as lost and broken as they are and hopeless, they won't be drawn to this light. It isn't to say that we're in any way better than the people outside of the church. We know that we've been saved only by the grace of God. But God's grace has transformed us. It has given us a hope and a future and a message to say. It has given us joy in our salvation. So that when the world looks at us, we can bring forth an answer for the hope that is within us. Jesus has called us out of the world so that we don't look like the rest of the world, but we look like him. 
He tells them to combat this worldliness by letting the Holy Spirit transform them. And we know that the Holy Spirit is within us, renewing us day after day. And so we must trust him to show us what the will of God is. Discerning the will of God is not something that we can just do on our own. It's not something that's so easy to distinguish. And it often doesn't make much sense to us. We see a few examples in Scripture of what the general will of God is for us. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we learn that God's will for us is to be made holy and to learn self-control. A chapter later, in chapter 5, God's will for us is to rejoice always, to pray always, and to give thanks always. In Ephesians 5.10 and 17, we are told to seek out and understand God's will. But to do that, we must rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us to do what is good and acceptable and perfect in the eyes of God. It is through through the scriptures and the Holy Spirit teaching us through that, that we learn what is good, what is true, and what is pleasing to God. And so we put away our old desires in the way of this world, and we ask God to change our minds for the better. Coming to the next section, it's, it's a part that's about the church of God being many parts of one body. The next verses, 3 through 8, read like this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This passage gives us such a wide overview of how we should use our gifts to serve the church and the community around us. And Paul starts off by warning them against being prideful. Because thinking too highly of yourself will lead to separating yourself from the community. It leads to disunity in the church. Humility keeps us focused on the things that we are called to do and stops us from attempting things that we don't have the ability to do. Paul addresses here not just physical abilities, though those are also important. If God has given you strength and time and talents, then you should use those things for the betterment of your church body and of the community around you. You should be generous with those things. Being selfish or tight-fisted with your possessions is not what God made us to be. He has given us what we have so that we can use it to help those around us. What Paul focuses on here, though, are the spiritual gifts, those given to us by the Holy Spirit to benefit the church body. He highlights that everyone has a unique spiritual gift that they've been given to serve the church. He gives examples of generosity and encouragement, and the ability to teach and to lead. The gifts are separate, but work together for one goal and purpose. Paul uses the analogy that the members of the church are like parts of one body. They're different, but they're unified by a single mind. He uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 14 say, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink. 
Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So these passages and the ones like them show us that we've been gifted, every one of us, in ways that we can use to build relationships with the people around us and with God above us. And now this body can do amazing things, but it must be unified under one head to accomplish anything. You can't get anything done if one hand is trying to do one thing and the other hand is trying to do something else. You can't walk in one direction if one foot goes this way and the other foot goes this way. That's not going to work. So, um, so Paul's teaching here is, is that people with varying personalities and abilities, they, they work together, they come together and fit perfectly, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like that in a way that God is using his body of the church to accomplish his mission. It's unity and diversity. And Paul's other teachings at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 show us that not everyone has, or no one has every spiritual gift to its fullest. It looks as if he's making this point to make sure that we're forced to work together. We have no choice but to work along our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Think of it like this. You may have seen some, some sports movie where... Um, you know, the high school team, is, it's a sports team, and it's just a ragtag group of individuals, and they don't work well together, and everyone's ego's going, they're trying to run the team their own way, and the coach just can't get them to do anything together. And so just imagine that, uh, that this coach is trying to get them to teach them somehow, and he has this bright idea. So he says, okay, let's load the team onto a bus and take them out to a farm. And so this football coach takes his whole team out to a farm on a Saturday morning. And, and they get off the bus and he says, All right, team, today we're going to build a barn. And they're all grumbling and complaining. Why would we spend a Saturday building a barn instead of practicing? It doesn't make any sense. But the coach, however, knows that they need to be forced to work together. So he goes to one person, the first player, and he gives them a hammer. He goes to the next person and he says, There's the wood. He goes to the next person and says, here's a ladder. He goes to the next person and hands him a paintbrush. And his goal there is to give them all a piece of the project so that to accomplish this goal, they were forced not to try and take everyone else's job, but they're forced to work together for one common goal and one common purpose. They must rely on each other to get anything done. In the same way, God has gifted us with the right tool for the right job. We have a gift for a certain part of his mission. We may do our part well, but we can't complete the whole mission of God by ourselves. God has equipped each of us in a way that we should work together, that we would have to work together to accomplish this great goal of glorifying God and building his kingdom on earth, a kingdom of love and of peace. We can't do the Christian life alone, and we're not meant to. Coming to the next section, Paul gives us some great example of what community life should be like, of the kind of compassion that we need for one another. It's passionate compassion. It's not passive or lazy, but it's active. We are seeking actively to love one another. He says in verses 9 through 13, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. <clears throat> be constant in prayer. 
and contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Love, obviously, is a central virtue of the Christian faith. The Bible mentions and discusses love over 500 times. And just think about some of the most well-known verses in Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Psalm 86.15. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And the list just keeps going on and on. But the very nature of love is genuine. If love is not genuine, then it is not love. Saying that you love someone and just giving that kind of lip service, but not really meaning it. It's like, it's like two kids on the playground at recess where one kicks sand at the other kid. And so the teacher pulls them in and tells the kid, say you're sorry. And they shove their hands in their pockets and then go, sorry. They said the words, but are they actually sorry? In the same way, it's simple to say that you love someone else, but to only do that, to only say that, it doesn't amount to much. Christians are not to have this general concept of love or appreciation for the idea of love, but they're called to actively love each other as Christ has loved us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 7-8. There, there are a few important lessons here. Honor one another, serve the Lord with passion, be patient and pray, give generously. We know from 2 Corinthians 9-7 that God loves a cheerful giver. Paul writes churches often in the New Testament to thank them for their hospitality and generosity, as he wouldn't have been able to make all these missionary journeys around the ancient world without the support of the local churches. Coming into the next section, he talks about, again, how pride is a distraction and a danger to community. He talks about a harmony that is humble. He continues these instructions. In the next couple verses, verses 14 through 18 say, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Here, Paul mirrors Jesus' instructions to love your enemy and to turn the other cheek. He includes a call to compassion, to empathy. Sometimes it may be easy for us to ignore the hurting people around us or to be indifferent over someone else's good news. Paul tells them to simply be happy because your neighbor's happy and to simply hurt because your neighbor hurts. Because that's the kind of compassion that holds a community together. I know that I personally have been greatly blessed by God's people in my life who have come along time in, in times of need. They have cried with me at the loss of loved ones. They have been there beside me to encourage me and to celebrate with me when God has done something amazing in my life. It's what family does. 
And I know that there are many of you here today who are going through some sort of hardship, some sort of, of difficult time where you just feel this sorrow and this discouragement. I know that there is difficulty in this place, as they're all in our places. And so it is the job of the Christian community to come alongside those who are weeping and to weep with them. That's like Jesus in the story of Lazarus and his death. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus up from the dead, but when he saw Martha and Mary weeping over their loss, he wept with them because he felt their hurt because that's what family does. He goes on to say that pride, again, is a danger to community. To be haughty and only associate with the powerful is to ignore the message of Jesus Christ in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the meek. This is another place where the Christian faith ran directly against the surrounding culture in Rome at the time. It would be commonplace for whatever social gathering they would have. If they would have a rich person come in, they would kind of make room by pushing the poor people to the side. And, and the temptation was there in the church as well. But when you come into the house of God, all people are equal. When you come into the house of God, there is no preference for the good-looking, for the talented, for the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. We are all the children of God. We are equal in his sight. He tells them also to do what is honorable and to live at peace as best you can. Now, when Paul writes, so far as it depends on you, he makes an important distinction. Because there will be sim simply people who don't like us. There were people who maybe don't like us because of our personality, because of who we are, what we look like, what we do. But there are also maybe people who don't like us just because we call ourselves Christians. Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 10, 22, you'll be hated by everyone on account of my name, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The lesson here is for us to do our part in keeping the peace, to not make it worse by trying to get after revenge or being petty. We trust that God will deal with the rest. Coming into the last section, we see Paul flourish with this main point that love overcomes. Verses 19 through 21 read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32:35, where the Lord tells the Israelites that judgment and punishment are his jobs, not ours. Human beings have a problem with being fair and unbiased, but God has no such problem. When God judges or punishes and disciplines, he does so with perfect justice and fairness. It's not up to us to be the judge of the world. It's his job, so let's do ours. The other verse he quotes is from Proverbs 25, 20 through 21. But how can showing kindness heap burning coals on someone's head? And why should it? Because that doesn't sound very loving. This verse doesn't mean that we do good to hurt our enemy, to get back at them in some way. What it does mean is that we are meant to repay our enemies' evil with kindness, hoping that that will bring them to conviction, that it will show them what they've done is wrong. You may have seen a, a customer at a grocery store or at a restaurant who's just exploding with anger over, 
at just shouting at a waitress's face, at the cashier, for whatever reason. Their face is red, they're stomping their feet and pounding their fists and asking for the manager. But if the, the cashier is just keeping calm and collected and trying to resolve the situation, you would say that person's a jerk, wouldn't you? You see, in this situation, the goal is to show your enemy, the person who is attacking you, that the fault is in their actions so that they would feel remorse. They would realize that they're wrong and they would repent of it. If the cashier blew up back of the person's face, I guarantee there wouldn't be a peaceful solution. And then they would both be at fault. Proverbs 15.1 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In the mind of the world and the culture around us, you may be totally justified to get angry and shout back. But we as Christians have been called to show love in the midst of adversity. We show love to our enemies. And in doing so, we overcome evil with good. And so in closing, what does all this mean for us? How do we apply this? So what? Well, firstly, these passages and the message of Paul here and the God through him is that we should worship God by living in a way that honors him. That by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, we're willing to say every day, God, let your will be done. Secondly, we put away our bad habits and our sinful tendencies to live according to God's will. We let the Spirit transform us and lead us and to do what is good and what is right. Third, we use whatever gifts and possessions God has given us to serve him and the people around us. God hasn't given you all that you have just so you can enjoy it. It is a gift, and you should enjoy it and be thankful for it. But you should also use what you have to bless those around you. Four, we are called to show real Christ-like love to everyone we meet, even the people who doesn't look or act like you, even the person who is very hard to love. Five, compassion holds us together. In a community of the church, compassion is what links us together as family because we know that we're in this for the long run. Six, do not seek revenge, but trust that God will do what is right. This is the great Christian hope, that we're not the judges of the world, but we have a better judge, a greater judge. And when he comes and restores all things, everything will be made right. The Christian is called to live a life of service to God, trusting the Holy Spirit to guide us and show us our place in the church, to hate what is evil and to truly love the people around us, to live in peace, to trust the Lord, and to overcome evil with good. And that's not going to be easy. For many of us, maybe most of us, it will be desperately hard. Look even at Jesus' disciples. Many of them lived terrible lives for the calling that they had, and many of them died because of their faith. But they lived through it with hope and with joy. And we too can hold on to this hope, the promise that our God is with us along the way. Thank you very much. As our praise team comes and we stand, it's family altar time. We want to respond to God's word today. We also want to come and pray about whatever needs we may have on our own heart and lives. There's a lot of things to be represented. And in a few minutes, I want to have special prayer for the, the Breeden and, and Bechtel family. But I'm going to say that 
after we have our family altar time. If you'd like to come today as they sing, um, bring whatever it is that's on your heart and mind to the Lord. But a lot of things were mentioned today that we can work on in our Christian walk and get closer to the Lord. And we really appreciate Luke being so vulnerable to stand up here and share with us today. Let's pray. Lord, that's the way that you call us to yourself is to come without pretensions, without hypocrisy. Because you know who we really are anyway. So we might as well come and just be open and just just be honest. And so today we honestly bow our heads and our hearts before you and we just say, you know us. (laughs) You know me, Lord. You know my weaknesses. You know, Lord, my emptiness. You know my hurts. You know the decisions that I face. And you know, Lord, the life that I want to live. And, And yet sometimes I need to bring that life and and realize that God's got a better life. I have to bring my decisions and realize God has a better plan. I have to bring my hurts and realize that God wants to heal. My emptiness to be filled by God. And so, Lord, around this congregation and those that were kneeling here, there's all kinds of needs, all kinds of desires, But there's a God who is able to minister to every kind of desire and need because he knows each of us intimately and he loves us and he cares about us. We thank you that you're that kind of God. We thank you, Lord, that you're not confused. You're not upset. When we are honestly seeking you, you're just such a wonderful God to provide. So meet the needs of our people today. And we're trusting in you. So Lord, now as we surrender and give ourselves, fill us, fill us with the answers that we need. Show us the way. Supply the needs. Help us to grow. Help us to become more like you and follow your plan. And that's what our surrender is about. Thank you for this time of surrender to you today. And we ask, Lord, now that you just continue to move us forward as we go through our worship time, but our time of thinking and reflecting. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. If you're looking for a church in the Brazil, Indiana area, The Brazil Church of the Nazarene invites you to join us as we seek Him, celebrate Him, and serve Him. Sunday morning, we have Sunday school at 9 a.m. and worship at 10 a.m. During worship, we have We Worship for preschool-aged kids and a children's church for elementary-aged kids. For this information, news, a schedule of events, and more, please visit us online at brazilnaz.com. That's B-R-A-Z-I-L-N-A-Z dot com. Or visit us in person at 1002 East National Avenue in Brazil. Thank you and God bless.